Thank you, Micah. If you would, turn in your scriptures to Isaiah chapter 40 for our scripture reading this morning. We'll be reading the entire passage of Isaiah chapter number 40. Follow along reading with me, if you would, beginning in verse number 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, Cry. And I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him in knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are counted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown. Scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth, When he blows on them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him? Says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. 
He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name. By the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Let's begin with prayer. God, we are thankful that we can look into your word this morning. God, our goal is to make you so big. And as we see your bigness and your greatness, we will begin to understand even more how much we are dependent on you. Lord, I pray that you'll give us strength as we look in this passage. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We started last week, as we did worship in the park, a series on Behold Your God. And the idea is we really, I, I want to present a huge God to you. I want you to see God as He is, and not as we view Him, but as He is truly in, in the Word and as we see Him in, in life. In today's culture, it's very popular to compare the, the, the top things in every, any category. For example... If you love football, uh, if you love the NFL, today's opening day, you can go and search and find the top ten greatest quarterbacks of all time. And I won't share my opinion who I think that is, but we'll move on. If you like to travel, you can look online and see the top five greatest places to go that before you die. If you like cars, you can see a, uh, a list of the top five sports cars or the top ten most economical minivans, or, and the list goes on and on. If you like burgers, I saw a list just the other day online. It was the top, the top place to go in each state for a burger. I figured that's my, on my bucket list before I die, to go to every burger joint in the nation. Okay, I'm joking about that. Even this morning, as, as Florida is preparing for a, a massive storm, I saw on, on, on line today, it was a list of the top five biggest hurricanes of all time. You, you see types of lists all, all the time. And today what I want to talk to you about is a list that only contains one. A list that is just singular because there is nothing, no one in comparison and, and Brent read for us this verse, and this is kind of the theme verse as we go throughout this entire message. But in Isaiah 40, verse 18, and, and here in this passage, the, the prophet Isaiah is saying this, and he asks numerous questions throughout the, the uh, chapter here, but he says, To whom will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with Him? There is no one else on this list, because it is God and God alone. Man has tried to create an equal to God. Man has tried to find something greater than God, but, 
but it's impossible. My question for you as we begin is, what is your first thought and what do you think about God? A.W. Tozer wrote a book called Knowledge of the Holy. I recently recommended this to you. I encourage you, if you haven't read it, find it and get it and read it. And in this, uh, A.W. Tozer says this, What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. In fact, he goes on and says this, Men, for a man and a woman, what they think about God in their hearts is the most important thing we can think about. He goes on and describes, and he says this, It is my opinion that Christian conception of God current in these middle years of the 20th century, he wrote this in 1961, that in currently in these middle years of the 20th century is so decayed as to be utterly beneath the dignity of a holy God. I believe that's true. He goes on, he says, It actually results in moral calamity. He continues and says this, The idolatry... The idolatrous heart assumes that God is other than He is and in itself is a monstrous sin. And He substitutes for the true God one made in His own likeness. Let us beware lest we think in our pride and we accept the erroneous notion that idolatry consists only in the kneeling before visible objects of adoration. And civilized people are therefore free from it. And then he concludes that paragraph by saying this, the, the essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of Him. And unfortunately, I think today, many people, even Christians, are entertaining thoughts about God that are unworthy of Him. When we look at this passage of Isaiah, we see something that is a, a God that is beyond what we normally think sometimes. So how do you describe one who is indescribable? We don't. In some ways, the best thing we can do is fall on our knees and humbly proclaim that God is an awesome God. And we're just awestruck. There's a sense where the greatness and the holiness of God leaves us and should leave us speechless. And that would be better than saying the wrong things about him. In Isaiah 40, Isaiah is writing to the, the, uh, to the nation of Judah, a portion of the nation of Israel that had, uh, fallen, that, that had separated and then uh, because of arrogance, God had taken the nation of Israel into captivity and it's not long before God's going to take the nation of Judah into captivity as well. And so these first 39 chapters of Isaiah are over and over and over again the writer um, uh, of Isaiah, which is Isaiah himself, emphasizing the judgment of God upon Israel and the judgment of God that's going to come upon Judah. And he's reminding these, these, these few remnant believers that are around that, that they need to have a better understanding of God. But it, he also is coming to them and they're broken. They're in desperate need of comfort. You know, I look out right now at our nation, and our nation needs comfort. Our nation needs people who will, will just come along the side and say, we're, gonna, we're praying for you. And I, I really appreciate the, the individuals from our church that are going down to help in Houston because it shows that there are people who care. 
And Isaiah 40 is a proclamation of comfort to the nation of Israel. And I believe it can be a proclamation of comfort to us as well when we begin to see this covenant-keeping, incomparable God. So let's look at who God is, and let's look at this passage. Brent read it for us, so I'm not going to read every verse as we go along, but um, I'll do my best to get through this and uh, as quickly as we can. First of all, if you're keeping notes and uh, in your bulletin you should have had a handout there, uh, first of all, God makes a promise of comfort. To the Jewish people, this section, this section of verses 1 through 11, were words that brought hope. They were words of, of divine intervention, but really it goes beyond that. And I don't think they fully grasp that. It goes beyond that. It comes and it talks about a coming Savior. And to them, that was something that they were looking forward to. And so, under this, I give you four points that all of these are just direct quotes from Scripture. And, and he says, first of all, comfort my people. Because in this, um, this section, verses 1 through 11, you'll see there are four declarations or four heralds. Yeah, this would have been common in that day. They didn't have newspapers. They didn't have television. And so uh, there would have been uh, someone who would herald something. They would come in the city square or the town square and they would stand up and they would announce something to all the people. And the people would hear it and it would be their way of knowing the news. Whether it was something about arrival of someone great or whether it was about something coming or whether it was about some event taking place, that was how they would get it across. And so these first 11 verses, you see... a. Uh, four heralds or announcements. And the first one was in verse 1, he says, Comfort, comfort my people. Now it's interesting that he uses the word comfort twice. The reason for that is the plural meaning gives us the idea that it was more than just one individual that was announcing comfort. It was probably, it was coming from God, but God was saying to them, Go and comfort my people. And who is he telling this to? Most likely it was prophets or maybe even a school of prophets, but they were told to announce comfort to the people. This word comfort in the Hebrew suggests that these people were were discouraged. They were depressed. They were suffering. And the prophet's job was to bring them hope, encouragement, good news, to ease and soothe their troubled hearts. In verse 2 it says there, if you look there, he says, now as you go out to bring comfort, he says, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. This is an expression that is a a poetic expression. It's used in other places in the Bible. For example, if you know the story of Ruth, uh, Ruth goes and marries a man by the name of Boaz, and Boaz comes to Ruth and and says in, in that passage, it says that he spoke to her from his heart. That is the same idea here. It's a, it's a compassionate thing. And notice what they were to speak. And it tells us there the, the, um, that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she received from the Lord's hand double for her sins. And the idea of that passage is God is, is going to forgive them. That even though they feel completely lost, God will forgive them. So we see the second proclamation in verse 3. A voice cries. Here's the next one. It says, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. The second instruction was to prepare for the coming of the Lord. So that, why? If you look down in verse 5, so that the glory of the Lord could be revealed. Because the glory of the Lord would be revealed. And what would that mean? Well, in the immediate context for the people of Israel, it was 
freedom from the oppression that was going to take place, and it was that their trials and their tribulations and their struggles would not be long. That God would provide for them. But, but in the greater scale of things, this is a, uh, a, a, a teaching by God of the, the coming of the Messiah, who was to be Jesus Christ. So this section begins with that voice of one crying in the wilderness. Now we know, because uh, we see this as we get into the New Testament, that this one crying in the wilderness was John the Baptist. And his, uh, here he is proclaiming, and he will proclaim Jesus Christ's coming. So in this section we, speak, we see here in verses 1 and 2 that, that there is comfort. And what's the comfort? The comfort is that there, there is one who is going to come that are going to make things right. For them, he goes on in verse five, uh, fourth, uh, excuse me, six through eight, and he gives the next proclamation: "The word of our God shall stand forever." In verse six, it says, "A voice says, cry. What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass wither, the, fl- the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people." Our grass, the grass withereth, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Notice how it's progressed in this chapter. First of all, it talks about how they need comfort. And they need the comfort from God. But the second uh, announcement is something different. It's that there's, the comfort will come in the form of one that is to come. A rescue, so to speak. But then we see in this third proclamation a declaration that Man cannot do it alone. That no matter how hard man tries, man cannot by himself free himself from what he goes through. It it can only be done through God because man is mortal and so man will die. What does it tell us in that passage? The Word of God will endure forever. It is God's Word that will be the motivating factor. That is God's Word that will carry on when nothing else does. We see the fourth proclamation here in this passage. He says, so behold your God. Look, if you will, at verse 9 again. He goes and he says, go up to the mountain and herald the good news. And what is the good news? It says at the verse, end of verse 9, he says, behold your God. And then this phrase, behold your God. In other words, he's saying this. He's saying, you need comfort and it's going to come. It's going to come, but you need to be patient. It'll be there. You can't do it in your own power, so wait. And as you're waiting, behold your God. And he gives us two images of God in this passage. Notice the first one he says in verse 10, behold your God comes with might and his arm rules for him. And the idea there is God is going to come in power. You know, that is, that is something that sometimes we like to kind of overlook. You know, God is a God of love. God is a God of, uh, of patience. But here in this passage it says, uh, God will come with power and his arm rules over him. tells us that God will come with powerful majesty and he will reign as king. But I want you to notice the second image it gives us of God in verse 11. It says, He will tend His flock like a shepherd. He will protect us. And He's telling the nation of Israel this. He's saying God's going to come and He's going to come with power, but He's going to take His sheep and He's going to wrap them up in His arms and He's going to hold them and He's going to protect them. Now for the Israelites, in their culture, in this time, that was something they understood because... 
uh, um, sheep raising was very common in that time, and so they would understand that a shepherd would constantly care for their sheep. They were, they were like their own children. They were so precious to them, and they would gather them in, and they would hold them, and when one wandered, they would do everything in their power to go after them. And so they understood that not only would God come in power, but He would come with tenderness and love. This idea of, uh, of the good shepherd or the shepherd is seen throughout the New Testament. In Hebrews chapter 13, it says that God is the great shepherd and that He reigns in heaven. In 1 Peter chapter 4, it says that He's the chief shepherd and one day the chief shepherd will return. In John chapter 10, He says that He is the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down His life. And so the theme of shepherd is throughout the Bible. And the imagery of this is this, that God cares and leads and provides. So this great message of comfort that came to the people is a great thing. However, the the problem is this. It's all well and good for someone who can't stand up and say, hey, you know what, you'll be comforted. It's all well and good for someone to say, hey, there's going to be one that's going to come that is going to heal your hurts. It's all well and good to say that the Word of God will last forever, but can He do it? And that's where we get into chapter uh, 40, verse 12, where we see this God, and we see number point number two is God is fully able to bring deliverance. And this, these verses 11 down to verse 26 is a is a, is a declaration of who God is. And Isaiah begins to describe a God that not only is capable, but is beyond compare. Is unlike any other God or any other being. We see, uh, what is He described as? First of all, we see He is sovereign over creation. Notice again, if you will, at verse 12, it says, "...who has measured the waters in the hollow of His hand and marked out heaven with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure..." and weigh the mountains and scales and the hills and the balance. What kind of God is it that they can expect? What kind of God is it that they're anticipating? After all, the hope of His coming and the promise of His deliverance is only as great as the God that they believe in. So He gives us this. And He develops this idea that He is sovereign over creation in three ways. Notice, if you will, this. In verse 12, He tells us that He overwhelms creation. Think about this for a moment. This idea of he overwhelms creation. The, the language is that of a, of a workman. Okay, but if you're a workman, maybe we have in here today a carpenter, or maybe we have a plumber. You're a workman that uses your hands in, in the trade that God has given you, and you go out and you do those things. And, you know, let's say you're a carpenter and you deal with wood and nails and, and, and screws and, and whatever else it is to make the whatever it is that you're making that is. Uh, in the end, a beautiful product. But notice what God as a workman is making. It says in this passage, who's measured the waters in the hollow of His hand. As we, as we anticipate, um, and as Florida anticipates this massive storm that is heading their way, and the idea of this amount of water that's going to be dumped onto, their, uh, onto that state and, and others as well, we think about the massive amount of water on our world. If you've ever been to the ocean and you look, my, my wife and I had an opportunity to go on a cruise and you sit on, on a boat and you look and in all directions all you see is water. You think, there's a lot of water. And yet God says 
It's just one of my tools that I can hold in my hand. He goes on and it says he marks the heaven with a span. Last week we talked about how the massiveness of God's creation and the massiveness of the universe and God simply looks up and he measures it with a span. God is sovereign over all creation and we sit back and we think, God, are you in control? And he says, yes, it's my workshop. It says there that He enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure. The idea there is that He takes all of the dust of the earth, all of the sand of the earth, all of it, in a pinch. Ladies, you ever make a recipe and it calls for a pinch? Okay, that's not a cup. That would, that would probably be a problem. Okay, that's not, a, that's not even a teaspoon or even a uh, uh, smaller amount than that. It's a pinch. You can't get very much in your pinch. And yet, what God is saying in this passage is God is so big that He can take all the dust of the earth and just simply, like it's His tool, in a pinch. And it says He weighs the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance. And He says, uh, these are nothing compared to Me. He continues on in verse 13. It's the second stage of thought about God being sovereign. It says in verse 13, No one can measure the Spirit of God. Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord? No one. No one can even understand God. Why? Because Jeremiah tells us that his thoughts are greater than our thoughts. That he understands things more than we do. And we have such a a tiny little picture of what's going on in the world. And God has this massive overview, not only of of the moment we live in, and not only of the world we live in, but the universe we live in, and even beyond that, all of time. And God looks down and sees it and says, who are you to advise me? It goes on in the end of verse 13 and 14, and he says, no one gave God advice. Verse 14, whom did he consult And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice? And who taught him knowledge? There is not a person that needed to teach God. In fact, there's nothing we can teach God. And God created everything by His own design and counsel. And what He did was beyond, not only beyond our ability, but is beyond our comprehension. And this great God came to Israel and said, Comfort. I am here and I will carry you like a lamb. Secondly, not only is He sovereign over creation, but we see He's sovereign over the nations. Look at verse 15. And it says in that passage, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. You take a bucket of water and and you take it and you drop one little drop into the ocean. What effect is that going to have on the ocean? Nothing. And that's what He says about these nations of the earth. Using this comparison, he compares these nations, and really, he's specifically in this passage probably thinking of the nations that are terrorizing Israel, the nations like Assyria and Babylon, and these massive nations, and he's saying, he's saying in comparison to God, they are just a tiny little drop. Even in the religious sense, look at verse 16, he says, Lebanon would not, be, uh, would not suffice for fuel. 
nor are the beasts enough for the burnt offering. He says, maybe you can come and you can bring your offerings to me, but there's not enough wood in all of Lebanon to, to offer on the, uh, on the altar for God. Not enough. He continues on and he says, all the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. That's an interesting uh, thought verse there. Take, take, go ahead to the New Testament when Jesus Christ was being tempted by Satan and Satan came. And what was, remember one of the temptations that Satan said to Jesus? He said, Hey, if you do this, if you uh, worship me, I will give you all the nations of the world. Jesus is God. And here in this passage, it says they're nothing. They're nothing. Not nothing in the sense he doesn't care about, but nothing in comparison to him. You know, we think that as a nation that we are such a powerful nation. You know, God does not look down at the United States and, and, and say, wow, what a powerful nation. Because in comparison to him, the United States is nothing. He is sovereign over nations. He is next, sorry, I didn't move that one on. Next, he is the incomparable one. We already read verse 18, but again, it says, To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? Who is it that you're going to compare? And the theme is introduced here throughout, that will run throughout the entire book of Isaiah, and that is that there is no one like God. He is true, and he is the only God. He goes on and says you can compare him to idols, but it's interesting the wording that's used. He says in verse 19, an idol, a craftsman cast it, a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it with silver chains. And he who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood. In other words, what he's saying here is, you know, you try to make something, you make this image, and what do you do? You ask a craftsman, who made that craftsman? God. Who made the materials that he uses to make that idol? God. And he says, and you do all this, and you, and you make all these things, and you worship this thing in comparison to God. God made it all. And there is no one like God. God created the humans. God created the materials. And no one created God. Verse 18 is another one of those rhetorical questions where there's no, there's no um, answer needed. It expresses that there is no one to whom we can compare God. And therefore, because God is sovereign over creation, because God is sovereign over nations, because He's the incomparable one, therefore God alone is in control. In verses 21 through 26, we see that. And in, uh, we see uh, God talking about that. In verse 21, we see a section with four rhetorical questions again. Four questions that need no answer, they're understood. And we see what they are, and and we see in verse 21, he says, Do you not know? Okay, parents, have you ever ever gone into your child's room and said, said, Haven't I already told you this like 50 times? That's what God's doing here. He's looking to, at us like little children saying, haven't I already told you this? Isn't this something that should be obvious to you by now? Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understand from the foundations of the earth? And then in verses 22 through 26, 
He picks up on those themes that we just talked about in the previous section, and he elaborates on them, and he focuses on them and how God is in control. It's just not that God is big, but God's in control. Look at verse 22. It is he, God, who sits on the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He stretches out heavens like a curtain. He spreads them like a tent to dwell in. We see in this passage, in those verses, he tells us that God is in control and the heavens are his canopy. And he moves as he will. Verses 23 and 24, he emphasizes again his sovereignty over kings and over nations. And he gets very specific in this passage. He says, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of earth as emptiness? Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither. You know, this passage, that that verse there tells me a couple things. First of all, number one, who is it that places rulers into position? God. Because notice what it says in that passage, scarcely are they planted. In other words, scarcely, just barely has God planted them into their position and planted them there. We think, man, these kings and rulers and presidents and all these things, man, they have such great power. And God says, you know what, I put them there and it won't be long where I will, and they'll be gone. And again, this is not to belittle us. This is to reveal the magnificence of God. That God is so incredibly powerful and above us. In verse 25 and 26, he reiterates the theme of his, his incomparable nature. He says, To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him? Says the Holy One. He emphasizes the fact that he's the Holy One. And the people here are, are, are called to, to uh, look at him. And notice what it says in verse 26. Look up your eyes on high and see who created these. We talk, as I said, we talked about this last week. When you look at the stars and you see the, the magnificence of them and the amount of them, and he says, who made all these? The Holy One. God the one who sits on high. And he says, not only did he make all them, but he called them by name. I said last week that there's, there's such a, uh, a massive amount of stars in our solar system and, and beyond that. And God you know, knows every single one by name. You know, man's still discovering them. You know, almost monthly, man discovers a new star and places a name on it. And God's going, yep, I knew about that one. He knows them by name. He is powerful. And not one of his outside of his sight. And he is telling us in this passage that he is overwhelmingly more than anything you can imagine. And then we come to this last session, and with this we'll close. God will renew the strength of his people through hope. At the beginning of this chapter, it's all about they're, they're broken and they're weary and God comes to bring them comfort. And then in the middle section, He, he reminds them that guess what? I am, I am a, I'm a big enough God to do that. I'm a big enough God. 
We get to this end section here, and he, he says, okay, until, until that comfort comes, wait. Because I am a God who is not only big enough to do all these things, but I'm a God who's big enough to strengthen you when you need it. So we see two aspects of this. First of all, he rebukes those who, who distrust God. Because you've got to understand, as those that would be reading this passage that Isaiah is speaking to, there are, there are a number of different types of people. There are those who, who uh, are true remnant of believers in God. They really do believe in God, and they trust in God completely, but they're worn out and they're tired. Then there's this large segment that probably believed in God at one point, but have, have fallen away. They've maybe given up hope because, because they're overwhelmed by captivity, they're overwhelmed by trials, and they think God has abandoned them or discarded them. And Isaiah is trying to convince them through these chapters that God has not. But there's, there's some that need to come to faith. They, they don't believe at all. They completely distrust God. And so verse 27 is a rebuke for those type of people. If you look at verse 27, he says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? They were convinced that God had written them off. They were convinced that God had said, uh, you know what, I'm done with you, and they kind of put them to the side, and they were over there, and they, they were convinced of that, and that was their, their complaint against God. But, but Isaiah here wants to affirm that that's not the case. You know, maybe you're here today, and that's you. You feel God has written you off. He's kind of bypassed you. He's kind of pushed you aside. Maybe you've lost your, your faith in God. You don't believe that God is really there. He says, don't be for that foolish. He tells them not to respond that way. And then Isaiah affirms who God is. Look at verse 28. Again, he asks rhetorical questions. Have you not known? Have you not heard? And then what does he say? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He tells them in that passage that he will not forsake what he has made. No problems are hidden for God. No problems are too hard for Him to handle. God is incomprehensible. His ways are right, even though we don't understand them. As I said a little bit ago, you know, God looks at the world differently than we do. We look and we see this pinpoint spot in history in our little tiny corner of the globe. And we say, God, why? And God stands back and He looks down and He sees not only what's happening here in Indiana, but what's happening in, in Houston and what's happening in Florida and what's happening across the globe and what's happening in outer space and what's happening all throughout the universe. But not only does He look here now at this moment in September of 2017, but He looks back 2,000 years and 4,000 years and He looks back yesterday and He sees all and they're all working together in a way that is, is going to bring Him glory. And He says to us, Your way is not hidden from Me. Your path is not a shock to Me. So then how do we respond? He tells us at the end here, and it's the promise of new strength for believers. Look what it says starting in verse 29. He gives power to the faint. 
You ever feel like you're going to faint? I don't necessarily mean physically, but I mean in life. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm done. I've had it. And to him that has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men fall exhausted. Even young people who think they have it all together, you still are going to faint and you're still going to falter. But notice what it says in verse 31. Many of you have memorized this verse. But they who wait for the Lord. In, verse, in those verses, God gives them a, a, a command, an announcement. He says, wait. And the idea of waiting here means that a longing for the fulfillment of the promise by faith. It's a confident expectation. But here's the thing, waiting requires patience. Waiting never is never indifference. Never. There's always a restlessness, but there's always an eagerness, a looking for something, to hope for something. It's an active thing. It's never out of our mind. It's, it's the idea of, I am going to go. I am going to go. Even though I'm fainting and even though I'm falling, I get back up again and I keep going. And even though sometimes I question my faith and sometimes I question God even, I get back up and I go on again. And even though sometimes I, I think, God, why? And I, I want to I give up, yet I get back up and I keep going on and I'm waiting and I'm waiting and I'm waiting. And God tells us, you know what? In the process of waiting, I want to renew your strength. I want to strengthen you. I want to build you up. And he was telling that to the people of Isaiah, that their rescue would come. Immediately that idea would happen. And when he rescued them, they would mount up with wings like eagles. He tells them to have a growing confidence in him. Because they would never grow tired on their journey back. Because he would strengthen them. Likewise, as believers, we're waiting. I am anticipating the day when Jesus Christ returns. And if that doesn't happen in my lifetime, I'm anticipating the day where God says, you've breathed your last breath, come home. And I'm waiting for those moments. And you know what? There's times along the way where I grow weary and I grow tired and I'm ready to falter. But notice what he tells us there. But if you wait on him, he will renew your strength. And sometimes it comes in masses and sometimes it barely comes. But it comes. He says when he renews your strength, you'll be able to mount up with wings like eagles. You'll be able to run, not be weary. And sometimes you'll just simply walk and not faint. But it will happen. They're expecting it to happen soon in the nation of Israel. Those who are waiting for that to happen, are we waiting? You say here today, well, I, you know what, is God big enough? I, I, I don't understand how you could read this passage and not understand if God is big enough. question is, are you waiting? Are you giving up? Maybe you're here today and you've given up. If we truly believe His Word and realize who He is, we will find comfort in this life, faith to endure, and hope in His coming. Here's my question to you. How do you respond to these thoughts? 
How do you respond to a God like this? In, in Ecclesiastes, Solomon tells us how to respond. He says this simply, he says, here's the whole duty of man, fear God and keep His commandments. So while we are waiting, while we are anticipating God's working in our life, fear God. Have a right understanding of who God is. Know who God is and then keep the commandments that He gives us. And when we do that, God will renew our strength. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for Your Word and this time that we can look into it. Lord, even as we go into our time of communion in a few moments, Lord, I pray that You'll help us to understand that the same God who created all things and the same God who is incomparable and is sovereign over nature and is sovereign over, over nations is also sovereign over sin. And You reign over sin and You did that through the death of Your Son. And so Lord, as we take this communion, I pray You'll help us to remember that and to understand that. And we are thankful again. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.